Welcome to Psyche Magic, a podcast about self-discovery and the subconscious, where we explore the symbolic language of dreams, tarot, and archetypes. I'm your host, Jordan Hale. I'm a psychotherapist based in Nashville, Tennessee. Each episode, I'll hold a casual conversation with various artists and healers about their shadow work practices. We pull tarot cards, unpack a significant dream or dream theme, and discuss their personal healing arts practices. So please grab a cup of something delicious and stay a while. While aspects of this podcast may feel therapeutic, it is never meant to take the place of therapy. Welcome back to Psyche Magic. As the wheel of the year continues to turn, I got to celebrate one of my favorite cross-quarter days in bulk last weekend. This is traditionally celebrated on February 1st and February 2nd here in the Northern Hemisphere, and this word translates to in the belly. It embodies the sense that the earth is becoming pregnant with new life, seeds are establishing deep underground, belying possibility of beautiful things to come. It's a time for poetry, fire, sweet simmering libations of cinnamon and citrus, I've been planting some seeds of new adventure on my own, taking my very first acting class, where I am learning Sanford Meisner's technique, involving a deep commitment to remaining alive and present to the moment, responsive and dynamic. My hope is that embodying this method will help me become a more engaged and authentic person within my own experiences and daily life as well. Instead of automatically inhabiting old survival-based patterns of people-pleasing and placation, my hope is that this course of study will bring out more of the messy truthfulness of who I really am and allow me to show up in a way that makes space for others' authenticity as well. Speaking of authenticity, you all are in for a treat with our guest today, Dr. Laura Anderson. Clinical Director of the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery, Religious Trauma Expert, and author of her new book, When Religion Hurts You, Healing from Religious Trauma and the Impact of High-Control Religion. I met Laura when I was pursuing licensure as a marriage and family therapist. Her supervision groups were a haven of safety in a context that was often poisoned by judgment and overly cautious trepidation around the tougher questions and topics that are essential to our field. In Laura's office, you could ask earnest questions freely, even if they were controversial, without fear of castigation. I admire that in her professional life, Laura leads from a place of authenticity and appropriate self-disclosure, one of the aforementioned tricky subjects in many supervision groups and graduate classrooms. 
This influenced me as a fellow clinician coming from a background of high control religion in which authenticity was quashed at every turn. Part of my healing has involved presenting myself as a human first professional who has a life and feelings and a story. The blank slate clinician encouraged by many graduate programs is, to my mind, just another version of the inauthentic, quote, perfect Christian who is not in touch with themselves, their truth, their feelings, and can't meet others in that place either. Laura and I discuss many of the realities and pervasiveness of not only religious trauma, but trauma in general as a broad and ever-evolving concept. And yet, we of course cannot touch on every aspect of these experiences in a one-hour podcast interview. For me, a huge part of my deconstruction from the church was reconciling with my queer identity, which I had been taught was unequivocally wrong and misguided. Yet, there was a quiet, strong voice inside me that persisted in knowing that this aspect of who I was was real and loving and honest. And if those things were true, how could it be bad? Meeting others in the queer community who had the same process was invaluable. While Laura and I did not have a chance to discuss this subject in depth, we did discuss many of the other arbitrary aspects of purity and righteousness that are wielded as methods of gaining and maintaining power and control, which more simply we could also name as forms of oppression. We also discuss methods of healing from these types of systems, cognitively, somatically, and yes, spiritually. I recently revisited the novel 1984 by George Orwell, which began stirring me as an eighth grader when we read it in school for the first time, while I was still deeply embedded in my family of origins religious belief systems. But I will never forget the impact this quote had on me. Quote, The party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final, most essential command. Unquote. I am still making my way through reverberations of this message's echoes through my many experiences I've had as a part of a system that I did experience as traumatic. My work in healing has been rebuilding a relationship to self-trust from the ground up, an ever-evolving endeavor I am so proud and grateful to have woken up to via therapy and other safe, non-judgmental relationships I've been blessed with throughout my life. I hope this conversation is helpful to those of you who may be on similar journeys. And as a quick disclaimer, please excuse my somewhat stuffy voice, as you can hear both now and in the interview. I was getting over a little sniffle at the time and still am, apparently. So now let's get into my interview with the delightful Dr. Laura Anderson. Dr. Laura Anderson, welcome to Psyche Magic. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Jordan. It's so wonderful to be here, especially because we have so much connection, known each other for such a long time. Absolutely. Laura was one of my clinical supervisors during my training for my marriage family therapist license. So we go way back. Yeah. (laughs) Laura taught me much of what I know. (laughs) That's very kind. That's very kind. Yes, it's true. It's very true. We'll talk Uh, more about it. But yes, you've been very influential to me, Laura, and I am thrilled that you wanted to be on my 
my show to discuss your fabulous book. So let's dive in because we've got a lot to discuss. Yes. Laura, I'm going to have you just introduce yourself for the listeners and then we'll get started. Yes. Well, my professional name is Dr. Laura Anderson. (laughs) I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in the state of Tennessee. I do supervision. I'm also a trauma coach and consultant. I have a company called the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery, where we specialize in all things like post-religion, religious trauma, adverse religious experiences, purity culture, cults, fundamentalism, All that really, really fun stuff. And so I work with a group of practitioners there who are absolutely fabulous, trauma-informed and trauma-trained specifically for this clientele. I wrote a book, which we're going to be discussing. Exactly. We'll get into that. (laughs) And I have a great little dog who's running around somewhere. Phoebe's in the house. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) We love Phoebe. Yeah. Thank you for that, Laura. You do do so many beautiful things. And so it's nice to have you be able to encapsulate it for the listeners Mm -hmm. and just give them an idea. But yes, we're going to really unpack some things today. This is a subject that I have long been wanting to discuss on the show. So I'm really looking forward to it. I went ahead and pre-shuffled the tarot deck. Okay, so we are ready. We are ready to pull a card. <laughs> Laura, you are familiar with tarot, yes? I is am. tarot a part of your sort of practices? Is that something that you engage with? Yeah, I learned tarot probably six or seven years ago from the shaman that I've worked with many times. And have loved it. Well, I actually went to him for a tarot reading and he pulled my cards and he was like, why aren't you doing this? Like, because everything indicates that this is something you should do. And he's like, I've got a training coming up, you know, sign up for it or whatever. And I was like, great. And so ever since then, I've been doing it. I do it sometimes with clients or people that will ask me for it, but pretty much I do it myself. And it's part of kind of my own practices, just being able to be meditative and reflecting and getting clarity on whatever I need to. I'm the same way, Laura. I would say that it's become a part of my kind of deconstructed and reformed spirituality that Mm -hmm. I have sort of claimed for my own. And I love it because it it brings up endless possibilities and options for self-reflection. There is no one right way to read a card. It's so healing in so many ways. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's so funny because, yeah, I could like when you look at a spread, it's like I can look at it and I see a story in there. Like I see something, but I... But then like on another day, it might be very different, you know, just depending on where I'm at and what I'm needing and that sort of thing. Yes, I agree completely. It can change from day to day, moment to moment. And that's why it's so beautiful. Yeah. Okay, so I'm holding the card that we pulled today. And you're going to love this, Laura. So I'm going to hold it up for you. And I'm going to ah, describe yes. it to the listeners. I love it. <laughs> we, we love to see a queen. Okay, so for the listeners, we pulled the Queen of Cups. And Yay. this is just such a peaceful card. Mm-hmm. Like she's just got this gorgeous throne that she's sitting mm-hmm. on. Her feet are kind of dipping into the water. There's this like pebbly, sandy beach area that she's enthroned upon. And she's yeah. holding this very ornate cup cipher. I'm not quite sure exactly what this vessel Mm -hmm. is. It's a bit of a mystery in this card, but she's got her crown and she's got her cape and she's just looking so regal in her profile. So queen of cups, Laura, just quick take, like what comes up for you when you look at this card, what happens? 
So whenever I first learned how to do tarot and we were going through each card, that was the card I really wanted to like, quote unquote, aspire to. I loved everything that it stood Perfect. for. In some ways, it reminded me of like my grandmother who oh. just had this like sense of insight and wisdom that, mm. you know, comes with age and experience. And so I loved yes. that. And I felt like it was such... um like the antithesis of what I had grown up believing was okay. You know, of course, we when we think of the cups, there's the emotion piece of it, the water, yes. the flowing. And so that felt very opposite to me in terms of where I grew up. And so that's a card that I really, really love. That makes so much sense, Laura. I, yeah. wow. I love hearing about your connections with the sort of like intuitive aspects of this card. And yeah, you're right. I mean, the cups suit is all about the emotional realm, which for so many of those who grew up in high control religion was off limits. Yes. <laughs> that was not something yeah. <laughs> that you were regularly given permission mm -hmm. to access. And so the Queen of Cups has mastery over that yeah. realm, yes. over her emotional world, mm -hmm. over her intuitive knowing, over her subconscious. Yes. So yes, very powerful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Very powerful message given kind of where we're going today. <laughs> Love yeah. that. We're going to hold that queen energy and we're going to use that queen energy to move into the realm of the subconscious now. So Laura, I am so curious. Is the subconscious, is dreaming something that you use in your, your clinical work and in your practice? Is that something that you emphasize or work mm -hmm. with? Just curious about that. So I always tell my clients, I know enough to be dangerous, but it's, Love <laughs> it's that. not something I would like normally, it's not a go-to that I have, but it's, but I do yeah. have several clients who will bring things up. Sure. You know, I went to school, my PhD is in mind body medicine. And so there really is these yeah. components from a variety of different backgrounds and cultures that are all kind of wrapped up into this degree. And so they're really Truly. what they was a certification you could get in dream work. I didn't have room in my schedule to do it, but I did go to a couple seminars on it. And so, and I've got some friends yeah. that are very much like versed in that and use that with their own nice. clients. So yeah, mm -hmm. I just know a little enough to be dangerous and, and then we incorporate it however necessary. Yeah, that's right. I love that. Well, and it's something that we all have in common. Everybody dreams. Everybody walks through the mystery of their dream yeah. world, right? Yes. Some mm -hmm. put more emphasis on it than others, and that's mm -hmm. fair. But on this show, we like to play. We like to examine yeah. the dream world a little bit. So yeah. I'm curious, Laura, I'll invite you to share whatever you like. Sometimes a guest mm -hmm. will share a dream that is poignant and salient to them. Yeah something that feels related to our, our broader discussion. Mm -hmm. Sometimes if I'm talking to a therapist, we'll talk about like, man, what are some of the dreams that show up in my room often yeah. that sort of tie in? So yeah. if there's anything that you want to share, you're, you're welcome. We'd love to yeah. unpack a little dream moment with you. Yeah. Well, it's interesting using some dream work, like in trauma work has sometimes been really important because I think yeah. The way that I'll approach it with clients the most often is paying attention to the themes that are coming up, whether yeah. it's a like recurring dream or you notice that it's always kind of this theme where maybe I'm stuck or I'm this or I'm that. I'm always in this one place yes. or with this yeah. one person. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that sleeping is sometimes our most vulnerable state because we're not consciously thinking about things and organizing right. and, and using our prefrontal cortex. So I think there's a lot of knowledge to be gained there. And in a lot of cases with my clients, I'll find that 
there's a completion that is looking mm-hmm. to happen. Something that is still living inside their body from something that from, you know, years or decades before yeah. that their body is just looking for a different ending to. And so in a session, we will bring that in like in a guided imagery way, or I'll say, you know, maybe the next time you have this dream and you wake up, could we resource and could we kind of complete it in a different way? But in thinking about when, whatever you first told me, like, you know, is there a client or whatever? Like I thought of one client in particular who has brought up several dreams. And it's so funny because She's an Enneagram three, which means, you know, very much perfectionistic, like just get it done, like do it and then be done and achieve, 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 achieve. achieve. And so um, we have a wonderful relationship. And so we can laugh about this. And she came in one day and had like, had had three dreams that all were the same theme, at least from what I could tell. And she's like, what do you think this means? And, you know, whatever, whatever. And I was like, well, what are the themes that you see? And she's like, well, in all of it, it's like, I have to like go through something in order to get to the other side. And I was like, yeah, that seems about right. What we realized is she would constantly fight that. She was mm. like, I don't want to go through it. I want to go around it. Or I want to yeah, say, how about, that's, no. how yeah. about yeah. Like that's how about in the we past. Don't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so we were we were just like cutting up, laughing because I was like, it seems like your subconscious is even saying, we have to go through this. We do not get to go around it. What is on the other side is attainable and accessible so long as we go through whatever that is. And it took her a while to get on board with that, which we still laugh about. Sure. Because we'll be like, hey, do you remember that one time where where I told you it was trauma and you said it wasn't and and turns out it was, you know, like that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But that was one that came to mind because I think that oftentimes for at least my clients, I know myself, whatever that theme is tends to be pretty much what we're working through or maybe even coming up some resistance or struggling with. Sure. Well, that makes so much sense because I, from the sort of framework that I've studied under, which is sort of a Jungian perspective, the subconscious is always showing us something that we are not quite consciously wanting to accept fully. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that is just so the dance of trauma work is that we approach the scary thing that we want to avoid in incremental steps, right? And our subconscious is showing us this is here, but it's always an invitation. And we only step through it when Mm -hmm. we're ready to do so. I think that's the biggest thing because I know for myself personally, there was a long time where I thought I just didn't dream. And then slowly as I was doing more trauma resolution work, I started to see some of these things. And I found that to be true with my clients as well, where the safer they feel in themselves, that, that internal safety and stability allowed their brain and body to bring things up to the surface that had been suppressed or buried for years or even decades decades because they were now safe enough to be able to enter into that and resolve it. And I've just seen that over and over. Yeah. Yes. And that is also the wisdom and brilliance of our system is that our system knows when we're Mm -hmm. approaching that level of safe enoughness Mm -hmm. to feel ready to look Mm -hmm. at some of these things. And that's incredible. Yeah. It's an opportunity to resolve it in a way that Mm -hmm. we haven't been able to before. And that makes a huge difference in our day-to-day living. 
course. No, I loved what you said about a dream that's asking for a completion or even just different possible mm-hmm. outcome or sort of yeah. a restoring. I think yeah. that that's a really empowering approach to mm-hmm. use. And it mm-hmm. sounds like you've incorporated what we would call like some experiential dream work or even dreaming the dream forward, mm-hmm. where I'm sort of in real time in my imagination, restoring an outcome yep. in a way yes. that feels more empowering, more adaptive. Yeah. It's powerful. Yeah, it is. I do a lot of somatic based work. I'm trained in somatic experiencing. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot in there is that our body is wanting to complete the trauma cycle. And oftentimes that means that we're able to do something that we didn't get to do back then, whether it was because we didn't have access to safety, maybe we were in freeze or flight or fight, you know, like all these things. And what our body is looking for is a way to kind of complete that cycle, which is similar to what we're talking about with dream work here, where it's like, we're going into that subconscious space Mm -hmm. and doing the thing that maybe we wish we could have done that I needed or finding the safety or a supportive figure, whatever, giving that to myself so that my body knows that is over, Mm. that is Mm -hmm. in the past. And we are now here in the present. And not only that, but we are safe. Yes, we are safe in the Mm -hmm. present. For those who aren't familiar, the work of somatic experiencing is so incredibly Mm -hmm. powerful. The work of Peter Levine and Mm -hmm. his associates. So the way that this started was studying the way that animals in the animal kingdom would discharge their trauma through shaking their bodies, Mm -hmm. right, Laura? And that was what helped us start to understand that there is a natural somatic way of completing that cycle when something too Mm -hmm. much, too scary happens, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's brilliant. Yeah. I think what we have that a lot of other animals don't have is a fully developed prefrontal cortex, which is where our, well, as humans, we think that's where we primarily live. We don't, but but <laughs> exactly. that's like kind of our center of organizing things, habits, logic, ration, you know, thinking things yeah. through. And so by the time that the threat is over, our prefrontal cortex brain like kicks back on and we're like, oh, it wasn't that bad. When in reality- Rationalized, justified, yeah. Yeah, our body is still going and is needing a way to discharge that excess trauma energy. And I'm not, you know, some people are like, are you being like woo woo, whatever? And it's like, no, I'm talking about science, (laughs) adrenaline and cortisol and other other chemicals and hormones in our body that are created to mobilize in the face of danger and then be discharged for a lot of animals, like we said, shaking, things like that. We are supposed to do that too. As human animals, we don't need to just say, oh, it wasn't that bad. Shut it down. We need to give ourselves that ability to discharge and find safety in order for that to kind of work through. And then, yeah, use our prefrontal cortex to help us organize what it was that happened. But it has to be both. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. I can't wait any longer. Let's get into your book. I just, I'm ready, Laura, because we're talking about safety now and we need to just dive in. So we'll ping pong back and forth, like I told you, and like like my listeners know, this is not like a formal interview. This is a conversation between two human beings. Yeah. But one thing that I do want to maybe start with Mm -hmm. is just this idea of helping us define and understand what religious trauma is Mm -hmm. and what it is not. Yeah. (laughs) 
That's so a good Laura, question. I'm going to yeah. hand it to you there and we'll, we'll go back yeah. and forth. Yeah. So I would say religious trauma is trauma. Uh, it sounds yes. a little like, you know, quirky, whatever. First but and foremost. It's true. Yes. It's and the reason I think it's important to note that is we do have great research and interventions and uh, modalities of treatment that we can use for trauma resolution that work, whether the trauma stemmed from religion or developmental things or yeah. war or anything like that. So it opens up this door of research and, and everything like that. So when we take the term, like what is religious trauma, religion then becomes a bit of a describer or an adjective word yeah. that helps us further understand where that trauma resulted from, where, what was the experience there? And that can oftentimes help us in regard to like, where do we need some of that recovery? And that that's where it differs. So religious trauma is trauma. All trauma is trauma in, yeah. in the way that it lives in our bodies, how our bodies, you know, function with an activated nerve nervous system and things like yes. that. But the recovery piece is where we see some differences. So for instance, mm -hmm. you know, somebody who is, has religious trauma, their triggers and what they need to work through may be very different than say a veteran who came back from yes. war. And so I think that's the important piece to note is that the resolution process, how trauma is resolved in our body is pretty much universal, regardless of where the yes. trauma stemmed from. And the recovery is more specific regarding, you know, the yes. environment that it came from. Exactly. Yeah. And the other important piece then to realize is that religious trauma and religious abuse are not the same thing. And that's where people get very confused and, and not even just religion, but the, you know, abuse and trauma are not the same thing. Exactly. Abuse is a thing that happens that may or may not result in trauma. And we've got plenty of research that helps us understand how it may result in trauma or what are the resources that we could have so that it doesn't get to that point. But at its core, trauma is not the thing that happens to you, but it's the way your body and nervous system responds to the thing that happens to you. And that thing could be abuse. It could be terror. It could be being captive somewhere. It could be a variety of different things, a car accident. Those things are not necessarily trauma, but they certainly could result in trauma. Yes. Such an important distinction, Laura. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a very common misconception is mm -hmm. that we tend to, in sort of, you know, popular culture, conceptualize trauma as a sort yeah. of specific event mm -hmm. versus a response to, and you help me with your language you use in the book, yeah. anything that's too much, too fast, too soon, too soon. right? Anything that yeah. overwhelms our nervous system to the yes. point where we don't know how to cope. Yes. Yep. And come back to that place of safety. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And so that means trauma is extremely subjective. So what is traumatic for you may or may not be for me. And yes. we know, according to research, there's a lot of different factors that are kind of at play in terms of like, how does this result? in trauma. Those are things like ability to access safety or have other coping mechanisms. Our yes. DNA plays a part of that. Our history plays a part of that. Our environment, all sorts of different things.
things, most of which are like beyond our control or in the subconscious spaces of our soul. And that all wraps together to play into, does this result in trauma or not? And that doesn't mean that if it doesn't result in trauma that, oh, you're just fine, you're good. You know, it can result in a whole lot of other things. Trauma is one among many. So it's important to know that, but trauma really could be anything. And I think that's important to know. Yes, it's it's yeah. extremely important to know because oftentimes what I have heard in terms of sort of misnomers, and specifically here I'm talking about religious trauma. Mm-hmm. I've heard a lot of misnomers that religious trauma is trauma that happened in a religious context, mm-hmm. right? It's a it's mm-hmm. an event that happened yeah. in a religious setting. Yeah. But we are broadening that. Right. It can be yeah. so much mm-hmm. more than just that. It can yeah. be the way I experienced the teachings yeah. and the uh, right. behaviors around this religion were traumatic to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really, and that's where we go with that subjectivity. I can think about, you know, I have siblings and so we yes. all grew up in the same home. We went to the same church. We lived at the same camp. We heard the same messages, like all these things. But how I was impacted is different than this sibling and then this sibling yes. and this sibling. And it doesn't mean any of us are better or worse. It just means how we internalized that was very, very different. And for some of us, that resulted in trauma. And for others, it really didn't or not overtly. Maybe they struggle with anxiety, but that it doesn't reach into the trauma realm. So I think that is really important. And it does allow us then to consider that what happened to us was that bad. Like we don't need to minimize what happened to us simply because it wasn't this catastrophic event that culturally people think of when they think of trauma, you know, because I think the other piece of it too is like with religious trauma, most people are like, oh, that's, you know, like clergy sexual abuse, exactly. like very extreme, like cult-like practices Mm -hmm. or like ritual sacrifice practices, you know, things like that. And those things certainly do happen are and are abuse. Like I don't want to to be clear. Yeah. (laughs) But whether or not they result in trauma is going to be a, there's going to be a variety of factors at play. And that's what needs to be considered. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and the other sort of really helpful piece that I think we also want to touch on is that your book is encompassing this sort of broader spectrum of, yes, religious trauma, high control religion, and also mm-hmm. sort of the broader realm of spiritual abuse, Yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess I also just want to point out that this discussion is not uh, sort of scapegoating religion as like this big problematic thing mm-hmm. in and of itself. Mm-hmm. We're saying that the harmful dynamics of power and control that can play yeah. out in these contexts mm-hmm. is the thing that does harm and the thing that can cause trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I get I get asked a lot, like, are you yeah. anti-religion? And right. I'm like, no, I'm not. Because that can become very fundamentalist just on like another side of the spectrum. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah. And so I, I will say like, no, I'm not that. But I am like anti-harm. I'm anti-abuse. I'm anti-power and control. I'm anti-oppression. I'm anti-racism. Like all of these things. And so if you can find a religious context that yeah. doesn't hold these other parts of it, sure. great. Like who I mean, am I to tell you that you shouldn't have that? that sounds lovely. A, yeah. Yeah. A faith system or a spirituality system or practices or traditions. Like 
by all means, like that is your life to live and go for it, you know, but yeah. And maybe that includes religion. Maybe it doesn't. But I think prior to the last, you know, like 10 to 15 years, most people who are working with quote unquote religious trauma were saying like, oh, you just like discard all your beliefs. You become an atheist mm-hmm. and then this is you're the fine. Way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're good. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, you know, maybe for Uh-oh. some people, yeah, <laughs> some people that sounds it might a little be, fundamentalist too. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, and it's perfectly fine if that's where you end up. But to sure. suggest that we must end up there, that's where Red I have flag. a problem. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. My nervous system goes, oh, no, I don't like that. (laughs) Okay. Well, so yes. Thank you, Laura. I feel like that's just a really important starting point, right? And then now I would love for us to get into some of these finer points of how we sort of conceptualize and define religious trauma. And for the purposes of this conversation, I am sort of guiding this from the lens of some of my own experiences and some of the Mm -hmm. things that I, as someone who was raised in a fundamentalist high control religion, some of the things that I experienced as traumatic. And so Mm -hmm. I think I'm following your lead, Laura, because you are a clinician who leads from this place of authenticity and appropriate disclosure as a way of creating important conversation. So Mm -hmm. that's a part of what I'm trying to do on this show. And I, if you, yeah, if you will bear with me, I'm going to try to share a few things and get your take and see if we can create a conversation around some of that. Hopefully that will be helpful. So, okay. One place that I want to start is this sort of, uh, this is like such a broad piece of it, but it's really important. This messaging in, in high control religion around inherent worthlessness, right? Mm, Being born bad, being born a sinner Mm. and the way that that contributes to all kinds of Mm -hmm. self-esteem problems, lack of self-trust, right? External locus of control. So yes, anything Mm. you want to say about that, Laura? (laughs) It's so funny because I obviously grew up that like believing that I came from a very reformed Calvinistic background. Yeah. And so that is like the core of their belief system exactly. is that you are born completely depraved. So evil, sinful, unworthy, don't even deserve the air that you're breathing, that sort of thing. And I remember like in my own deconstruction process, like telling a friend of mine, cause she was, you know, very concerned of like asking questions. Sure. I was like, don't worry. Like, I'm not like questioning the theological stuff. I'm just, you know, like questioning the practices. And I had a moment like a couple days after that, where I was like, hold on though. If I believe that I'm unworthy, that I'm completely depraved from the time I take my first breath, like, doesn't that shape every other aspect of my life and how I view myself and other people and the world? Yes. And and it was like a hard, like, yeah, that does that. Yikes. And so yeah. I think when we start with that as our foundation, which many people do, mm-hmm. it might be worded a little bit differently. That's okay. But I think when we start with that, we are setting ourselves up to be in a dynamic of power and control. Yes. Because at our core, we cannot trust ourselves. In fact, we have to vilify ourselves and our desires and we are evil. And so we can't trust ourselves. It also means that we can't really trust other people because That's they're the same as point. us. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so not only do I have to look outwards for like, you tell me what to do, but mm-hmm. then also I don't trust you but you also know better than me. So it's just like this very weird kind of mind F, you know, because 
You yeah. don't. And really... you can curse on this podcast too, by the way, if you want. As a quick disclaimer, I wanted to include this exchange about allowing for unedited language in this episode, though I do this across the board in every episode of the show. But in this example, I wanted to highlight that another aspect of purity culture that I experienced and continue to experience is this strong aversion to quote, curse words in many high control religious cultures. This creates another example of the us versus them mentality that Laura and I have touched on, in which the implication is that those who use, quote, curse words are bad, and those who don't are good. So I like to disrupt this binary whenever I can, as someone who has always enjoyed peppering my sentences with spicy language as a way of expressing myself and adding emphasis, though I do not condone using any language as a means of harm or hatred. Yeah, I mean, it really is like a mindfuck because it kind of puts you in this space of constantly like not knowing what's right, not knowing truth, not knowing yourself, not having awareness. And the level of anxiety that most people experience from that is catastrophic. Yes. And I think it was so important for you to highlight that it also sets us up for it to be in a dynamic of imbalance of power and control, where even if my system is screaming at me that something doesn't feel okay, I have to ignore that because I've been conditioned not to trust myself under any circumstances. And that my knowing is always wrong or flawed and that I should be looking towards whoever the authority is under God, right, Right. to tell me what to do. And then you can't question that either. No. And that's a problem. I mean, any system where you can't ask questions is a problem. But in a system like this where questioning then threatens your salvation. It means you're maybe not a true believer. It means that you're doubting, backsliding, you know, whatever the terms are that this group uses. It means that you're almost like at war with yourself all the time because any sort of natural impulses or instincts or desires or questions that come up are further proof of your unworthiness. Right. and so it's this kind of like self-fulfilling prophecy in a cycle. Yes. And and there's not really a way out of that. It kind of self-perpetuates to keep you in that cycle and system. Yes. It reminds me of, a, you know, a sort of narcissistic abuse cycle yeah. where I am just continually belittled in this relationship and yeah. put down. And yeah. so I begin to feel like I I must be the problem here, right? Yeah. Like yeah. this other person is never taking any responsibility. So I, I guess it's on me. It's yeah. very reminiscent of that dynamic. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to read a quote okay. from your book because I loved this, Laura. This quote says, if you have been told that people wearing blue shirts know best and can do no wrong, then if a person in a blue shirt assaults you or violates a boundary, you are conditioned to believe that this is okay behavior and mm-hmm. you just have to deal with it. So that's just like mm-hmm. such a, I love your your illustration of the blue shirt because yeah. to me, it is a perfectly arbitrary example of what we're yeah. doing here. I'm a, in this <laughs> Might as well position just be a blue of shirt. spiritual authority. You have to trust me. You cannot trust yourself. You are so mm-hmm. evil and unworthy. And it really, really messes with you. And there's no way to call that wrong. That's mm-hmm. completely deserved, completely expected. And I should probably be grateful for it because mm-hmm. here's these people that are taking the time. Trying to help me. Yeah. Yeah. 
to help. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. it's really, really messed up. The analogy of narcissistic abuse absolutely works in a yeah. situation like this. Yeah, well, uh, sadly, I went on to get really familiar with those dynamics in my own yeah. life yeah. because I was yeah. primed and conditioned yes. for them yeah. as a result yeah. of this system. And mm -hmm. saying that out loud actually feels really good. Like, that is mm -hmm. true. It's awful. And it's true. Yeah. On that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Okay, another thing I want to say under this umbrella, and you'll have to help me with this, Laura, because it's a complex subject, mm -hmm. but I want to talk about spiritual bypassing, mm, um, yes. which is a term that gets thrown around a lot, but it's mm -hmm. one that I would say is, especially in terms of my own experience, is really important, mm -hmm. where there's this dynamic that happens where essentially... And this is funny because it's kind of Queen of Cups-ish. Like we're taught not to trust ourselves, not to trust our body and our responses. Mm -hmm. Therefore, if I'm having a hard time with something, if I'm struggling in some way, mm -hmm. that actually means I must be doing something wrong. Because under this system, we have mm -hmm. all the answers. We know what we're supposed mm -hmm. to be doing at all times. Yeah. So if you're struggling, mm, that's really on you. Yeah. You, need to, yeah. you need to do something about that. You probably need to pray more, probably need to trust God more. Maybe if it isn't your fault, then God is just testing you. So you also need to be grateful. So there's always like the flip side of that. Let's coin. not forget. <laughs> yes. Because God loves yes. a sufferer. Yes. See Job. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So that idea of spiritual bypassing, and of course this can happen in many, many different contexts. It is not just yes. religion. I think that's important to know, Important. but it's where it, it's, you know, we could take the spiritual piece off and just say bypassing. So it's, it, it is what it sounds like, right? Totally. If we were to take a bypass as we're driving down the road, it means that we're passing through, passing over, going around something rather than through something. And so we see this in a lot of spiritual contexts and religious contexts where we don't want to, or maybe even know how to, or we're not equipped to deal with difficult things, whether that's emotions or grief or situation or, you know, harm in the world. And we make statements, well, they're in a better place now. Oh, or, like platitudes. Yeah. Platitudes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so we, we use like verbal platitudes, mm -hmm. emotional platitudes in order to kind of organize whatever the experience is and just leave it in the past. Tie it up in a little bow and just move yeah. on and you don't get to yeah. have a grief process because they're in a right. better place now. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. I remember having a conversation with a family member where we, where the discussion of miscarriage was coming up, uh, like having a miscarriage. And a family member said, but sometimes God uses situations like these to really turn that person's life around. And I about like, mm. wanted to like slap this person. Yeah. It's really tough. That's an example of bypassing. And I would say that is not uncommon. Like those sorts of things. No, oh no, not at all. Like to that gravity and mm -hmm. that level of horridness, that's mm -hmm. not uncommon. And that would be an example of, of bypassing. We don't want to actually deal with like the pain and the grief. We don't want to deal with like, why did God let that happen? And so right. we just, we can't, we it. can't go there. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah, so much of the, because we're going to talk more about the actual healing process. But, you know, as we've already hinted at, so much of the healing has to do with feeling really heard and really mm-hmm. validated in yeah. the yeah. depth of what we experienced. Because yeah. you talk about this so much in the book, but in trauma, we often have so many defenses and things that are trying to mm-hmm. keep us safe in those experiences mm-hmm. that sometimes we end up really disconnected from ourselves and the reality yeah. of the depth of what we went through. And mm-hmm. so that reconnection is such an important part of healing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a big fan of self-compassion for a variety of reasons. Yes. But I think adding that in, and I try to add it in with clients that, you know, close to the beginning of our time working together, because when we can have just even a little tiny bit of self-compassion towards ourselves, yeah, it helps us in the present at least not be fighting against ourselves. I think it's so easy for people who have trauma to think, why did I act like this? Why did I do this? Why did I say this? Yes. Why Why did I freeze? Why did I not get out? Absolutely. Yeah. And to instead kind of give yourself the space and compassion to be like, okay, well, at some point, my body realized that that actually was what I needed to do in order to stay safe. And yeah, I mean, that doesn't necessarily fix it right now in the moment, but that compassion allows us at least the space for like curiosity and maybe some new things to come in to deal with it and to say, okay, if that were to happen again, how might I want to respond to that? Where is Where are the safe connections I can reach out for? What are the tools? Where can I orient to? How can I ground, That's you right. know? in those moments. And we can't do that if we don't have an amount of self-compassion towards ourselves. That's redundant, but that can happen (laughs) because otherwise we're in that moment going, just get it together. Why can't you do this? You know, that sort of thing. There's no space. Right. Right. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. And so that reconnection is about being able to tolerate in any amount my experience and let it be so. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and to respond accordingly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, because that that chronic disconnection from the cell, from the body yeah. is such a hallmark of trauma. Right. And with that, we cannot get through this conversation without talking about purity culture. Yeah. This is, again, when I look at my own life and the sort of tenets of religious trauma, purity culture is one of the biggest ones. Mm -hmm. And I know that you are so much more of an expert on this than I am. So I would love to hear your kind of conceptualization of purity culture. Mm -hmm. And then I'll add to that. Yeah, I would say, I mean, I don't have hard facts, but I would say probably 95% of the clients that we work with at the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery are dealing with some sort of impact from purity culture. It's so pervasive. I wish there was a succinct definition for purity culture. There really isn't. I think the easiest way I would say it is like, okay, like in evangelicalism, like American evangelicalism, there's this heavy emphasis on your worth being tied to your virginity, no sex before marriage, but even more than that, maybe not even kissing before marriage. There's a lot of modesty pieces. Yes. Mm -hmm. Very rigid, definitive gender roles, only two genders. There's like a very specific- this is all part of it. Yes. Yeah. And so that I think is pretty- common in what we would maybe consider other purity cultures as well, whether that's within like the LDS church or sure. the Jehovah's Witness organization or any religion really. And so, but they might have different kind of like 
interpretations of certain things, different types of practices. And so I think it's, I think it's recognizing that purity culture puts purity up on this pedestal and makes a prescription of like, this is what purity looks like. And you have to ascribe to this. Everything in your life has to be towards this end goal. If you don't meet that, which is like impossible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you're a human. Right. But it's, yeah, it's a squashing of a lot of really natural human desires, Mm -hmm. physiological cues, things like that. And it's, it's saying this is actually sinful rather mm-hmm. than this is like a normal human thing, normal yes. human development, things like that. Yeah. We just put a ton of rules around then every yes. aspect of life. Yes. Because you touch on this in the book too, but purity culture is not just about sex. It's also mm-hmm. about all these other ways that we yeah. set ourselves apart and we treat our bodies as a temple and we yeah. only, you know, mm-hmm. uh, can gain weight under certain circumstances. But even then it's kind of a problem yeah. because you're putting food over God, right? Like yep. there's all these different little sort of insidious yeah facets under under which it can play out. And I would even say we can get into some murky territory around like some sort of white supremacy shades in the church as well. Absolutely. There is much research that has been done that it really goes back to this idealized white woman and keeping her, you know, at the center on a pedestal at all costs, which is really to create a quote unquote pure race of people. Yeah. Messy. So yeah, I really appreciate Dr. Sarah Mosliner's work on that. She has done a ton of work, both in her research, her books, and she actually has a podcast series on it, just really tying together the white supremacist roots of purity culture. Yeah. We'll link Mm -hmm. to it because I I was going to add that it feels especially true that being a woman or a feminine presenting person in a church setting was even more of the sort of battleground of purity culture. It was like our bodies were the front lines. And if any man was having a reaction to our body, it was our Mm -hmm. fault, right? It meant that we were doing something wrong which is so confusing and hard. And it also doubles down on this self-hatred piece that we're talking about is that now I also am trained to hate my body and see my body as inherently evil and a problem. Yes, absolutely. It's, It's this weird dichotomy of like women, especially white women are on this pedestal And they are also demonized at the same time, right? Because we're also under patriarchy. So, yeah. 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 And not only patriarchy, but it's patriarchy plus God. So it's like patriarchy. Because God's a man. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so, and, and God says that men are supposed to be in control. So it's like, it's this extra layer of oppression for any sort of marginalized body or any person that's not a cisgender heterosexual white male. So it's real fun. (laughs) Purity culture, we could have a whole like 24 hours a day conversation about purity culture for like a long time. But it's one that I knew that we needed to touch on and that you spell out in the Mm -hmm. book as being related directly to rape culture and sexual abuse. And I feel like it's just so important to call that out and to name it for what it is. Again, it can feel like sort of a grooming process Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. abuse. Yeah. So harmful. 
Yeah, it really, when you look at kind of what we might call the tenets of rape culture and then the tenets of purity culture, the overlap is like, it's based, you know, it's like one circle, right? You know, it's uh, the not Venn diagram like, is yeah, the Venn a, diagram, yeah, a circle. It's a circle. Yeah. And I think that would horrify people inside of purity culture because of course sure. they would say they're against rape. Of course. But there's all these caveats as well. And you're, we're against rape so long as she wasn't wearing a shirt that was too low or a skirt mm -hmm. that was too high or she wasn't walking in this way or saying this way if if it's not the perfect scenario mm -hmm. then she might have deserved it which mm -hmm. of course is a rape culture myth you know and yeah. so i think that that's really important but not everybody in purity culture has been sexually assaulted almost similar to like single incident trauma versus complex trauma yeah. and in myself and the clients that i work with i think unequivocally we would say that resolving how that sexualized violence lived in our bodies was far mm. easier than how purity culture did. Yes, exactly. That that inherent mistrust, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hate, fear shame. is so, yeah. yes, shame is just so, so, so hard to dismantle. And it's just so objectifying because you talk about this in the book too, but it's like, I am trained to see my body and my sexuality as like one in the same Thing. Yes. Like, yeah. like I can't exist in a body without being automatically sexualized. And that's just really yeah. scary. Yeah. Talk about overwhelming. A woman. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was funny because I posted like something on my Instagram just to get feedback from people. And I think it, I, I talk about it in the book, but it was something to the effect of like, what did purity culture teach you about your body? Or mm -hmm. I think it was about, it was about embodiment. But over half the answers that I got were about sex and sexuality. Yeah. And it was what it was really clear then is that like there is an overlap. Women in particular or individuals socialized as female in these environments mm -hmm. were viewing this as one in the same. They were completely yeah. overcoupled. My body and sexuality are the same thing. Both are evil, vile, dirty, and disgusting. Right. I just, I feel like even for those who didn't grow up in necessarily a high control religion, mm -hmm. purity culture was just, oh, like, yeah. for, a, for a while there, it was just mm -hmm. so pervasive, like societally mm -hmm. as societally. well. Yeah. I mean, when you look back at when Bill Clinton was president, he signed yeah. into law with the Welfare Act that there would be extra funding for schools. I think it was like $50 million extra funds for schools who taught abstinence-only curriculum. Uh -huh. And people jumped on that because, of course, we would want money for these sure. programs. So it's very sneaky and sly. But that was the early 90s. So we're not yeah. even talking that long ago. And we mm -hmm. saw people like Britney Spears and Jeff. Jessica Simpson and Katy Perry and like oh, all I these remember. people that were making these purity pledges, you know, the mm -hmm. Jonas Brothers, all these things. And it was becoming, quote unquote, culturally cool to be a virgin oh, yeah. on top of the way that so many of these major church leaders that were promoting this were very involved in state and national legislation and mm -hmm. kind of pushing bills and legislation forward that were promoting their own principles which is all of this. Yeah. So it's it's wild when you start digging beneath I the know. surface there. I know, I know. Okay, <laughs> we have more to cover. We're gonna move on, even though we could yeah. say a lot more. Yeah. Because I wanna get a little bit more into just sort of the healing 
piece mm-hmm. of like, God, okay, we're dismantling this. What do we do? The other piece that I wanted to touch on that we didn't quite acknowledge yet in so many words, and this can tie into healing actually, because for me, this has been a big part of my process. But mm. so many of these messages had this sort of net result for me in my sort of trauma response, my systems go to was mm. developing a very sort of quick trigger fawn response. Okay. Yes. So for those mm-hmm. who aren't familiar, we have fight, flight, freeze, fawn, and fawning means that I have learned to submit people please, placate, do whatever I need to do to make the other person in the scenario feel okay and feel good Mm -hmm. so that I can be okay, right? Right. And so this has fostered just a lot of having to dismantle patterns of codependency Mm -hmm. that were really unhealthy. Um, But I thought it was interesting that you talked in the book too about this really common experience of having this sort of warped version of relationship where it's my job as an evangelical to heal you, fix you, Mm -hmm. convert you, right? Make things better for you. That's my job. I have to go out in the world Mm -hmm. and do that for everybody. Like no pressure. Mm Yeah. Yeah. No pressure. A little like seven-year-old Jordan is like, but how do I get to all the other countries in the world? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it is. I mean, part okay, so like evangelicalism is very tied to the word evangelizing. That's not a mistake. Exactly. And that is a a tenant of many religions, many uh, faith groups, whether or not they have evangelical in their formal kind of religious name or whatever, it is to evangelize. It is to do whatever that, I think it's a verse in Matthew. I can never remember Bible stuff anymore, but it's, it's something like, you know, like go out and you know, preach to the world okay. or whatever. Oh, yes, yes. I remember. Yeah. And so they take that as this very serious commandment mm-hmm. that this message that I have is the message that everybody else needs to hear. My job is to save as many people as possible. And that looks like essentially controlling their lives. But we don't start yes. off with that. <laughs> like right, that's right, not right. the message initially. It's a soft launch. Yeah. 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 Um, but it, it it really becomes that. And it mm-hmm. really then, it shifts the way we relate to other people. You know, mm-hmm. as a therapist, I'm sure you have found this, like we heal inside of relationships. Like there is yeah. something that is unmatched. We can do amazing healing work on our own. And then we need yeah. people and something there, it's magic. Something mm-hmm. happens that cannot happen on our mm-hmm. own. And it's beautiful. But yeah. I think for those of us coming out of high control religions, we don't understand what relationships are. Right. We see them as me telling you what to do rather than this mutual connection of autonomy and non-judgmentalism and consideration and compassion. Uh, we just Holding don't know multiple how. perspectives yeah. at the yeah. same time. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We're never, we're never taught that we can have differing opinions and still be friends. Oh, exactly. In fact, we're taught the exact opposite where difference over anything equals danger. So yeah, it leads us back into these places then when we get out of those systems, not only do we not know how to relate to other people, but we tend to be very fearful of other people Mm -hmm. because they can hurt us. We've been hurt in the context of relationships. So why would I want to be in the context of relationships as I'm healing? Because I'll probably just get hurt more. It's a very catch 22. And I often tell people like there may be a period of time where you do need to just 
kind of hang back and let sure. yourself be a little bit more like a hermit. Sometimes like we need reset. that time yeah. to just, mm-hmm. yep. And then I think our bodies will naturally move us into okay, it's time. It's time to reach out. It's time to find connections. And the healing shifts then in a really beautiful way. And there's not words to describe it. It just happens. Yes. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Well, and it's tied to the process that you've talked about, which is learning to tune in to what's going on inside me to be able to trust and follow those impulses little by little by little as they lead me into this new way of relating. Mm -hmm. Yes. Where I'm not responsible for you. I don't have to save you from literal hell. Big childhood fear of mine, right? Like just ruminate, ruminate, ruminate. I'm not responsible for you, actually. I can just enjoy being around you and I don't have to make you be a certain way and it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I put, you know, as I, as I structured the book and, and everything. So, I mean, I talk about this in the book, like this comes out of my own doctoral research, um, for my dissertation. And I used my journals, uh, my own personal journals as a source of data. And so what I noticed actually, like, there's not a step-by-step you can go through all of these things at a variety of different times. But what was really interesting to notice over this journey was that some of this was all that was the step-by-step process for me. And they built on top of each other and then went together. But regardless of how those steps go for people, I will say that typically the ability to have safe and healthy and connective relationships comes after you've had some amount of learning to be embodied, learning to have boundaries, self-compassion, self-trust, grief work. It's like when we have those resources then inside of ourselves, we then can feel safe enough to be open to the world and the people in the world. Yes. And that can create a foundation for relationships. It's funny because whenever I talk about that chapter, it is the one that I get emotional over every single time. Because there's a visceral knowing in my body of what it was like pre-relationships and how it is now. And there aren't words to describe it. It just, I feel it. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I've seen a lot of my clients and colleagues and friends go through something very similar Yes, where it's just this natural step into a new part of our lived reality. That's right, Laura. That's beautiful. And I can absolutely relate. Like yeah. just the freedom in that is just so incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And you said yeah. this too. I don't have your exact words, but you said another something about how, and this is in our, our healing part of the conversation, right? You said that we are healing from trauma often requires experiencing a response that is the opposite of how you were treated mm-hmm. in the traumatic situation, right? Yes. So this is our yep. corrective emotional experiences that we yes. get to have with each other. Yeah, it is really beautiful because so often trauma results not from what happened to us, but from what didn't happen to us, what we didn't receive, especially as children and adolescents that are under the care of of caregivers. And yeah, I mean, I can think back to some very specific like incidences of trauma. And I'm thinking back to like a 48 hour period of time where what I was most traumatized by was the response that a loved one had 
towards me. And that was more harmful than what actually had happened. Mm -hmm. It was funny because like when I do therapy, they're like, but why, what about this thing? You're not touching that thing. And I'm like, because that doesn't actually feel traumatic to me. My Mm. body isn't holding activation. Mm -hmm. What, where the trauma is, is what did not happen in that moment of need. And that's what needs to be resolved. And I think that giving ourselves permission to consider that perhaps it is maybe giving ourselves a different ending. And that could be pushing back, saying no, you know, kind of resolving how that trauma energy lives. And it also could be through giving yourself what you needed, whether we do guided imagery, inner child work, parts work, whatever it needs to be. And going back and giving that part of you the comfort, the connection, the feelings of safety and stability that you should have gotten back then. Yes. But for whatever reasons, beyond your control, they were not available to you. But then that becomes the work. It's like, how can I meet my own needs (laughs) in the the way that I really, truly need them to be met? Yes, I'm still working on that. And that, and I think it's worth noting that that is a living process. I, I don't Lifelong. think, yeah, I don't think I know a single person who's like, oh yeah, I had this like super wounded part of me. We did some trauma work and now I'm good. That part never gets activated again. It's like, no, no, yeah. no, no, no. Like, I, I don't think you've maybe done your trauma work then because, exactly. you know, it's, it's just, it's one of those things. And that's why I, I like kind of quote unquote, comparing it to like a chronic illness or chronic dis-ease where we do have flare-ups, we have triggers that we just have to make accommodations for. Mm -hmm. And so just like if we have chronic pain that flares up, we say, okay, I need to get back to the basics. I need to lie down. And we don't shame ourselves for that. We just say, okay, this thing happened and I'm going to accommodate it. The same is there with trauma triggers. Okay. Let's not shame ourselves for that. They're going to happen. It's not if it's when. And so when those things happen, what are the things I can give myself in order to come back to the present moment, get the safety, security connection that I need, and then keep moving forward. And it's going to happen over our lives. And sometimes they get less and less. That is true. Sometimes they're far less intense. Sure. But sometimes they can catch us off guard and we're like, whoa, I thought that was way in the past. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so we have to take that into consideration. That's right. In order to wrap up, I would just love it, Laura, if you could give us a little quick rundown of your concept of internal safety. Mm. I think that external safety tends to be one that is is easier, I think, for my clients to grasp. Like, is this a sure. safe scenario right. as I look around, right? Yeah. But internal safety, that can be a little bit more of a struggle. I get a little yeah. more like blank faces sometimes, mm-hmm. right? right? How would you conceptualize this for the listeners? This is a huge part of healing. And how, yeah. how would you sort of characterize internal safety, seeking internal safety? Yeah. Well, like the little cliche definition that you could use is like finding safety from within yourself. But even that is very vague, right? Right. It's like, what does that mean? So I would go, yeah, yeah, I would go back to, sometimes we have to see what it should have been like to then see what internal safety might be. So we use like attachment models, like in, in childhood, 
We look at children in a safe, secure, supportive environment have this relationship where they can trust their caregiver. They can depend on them. If they make mistakes, their caregiver helps them through it, navigate it, picks them up, holds them, that sort of thing, where they develop this attachment to them that allows them curiosity, the ability to play, but they always know that they are going to be taken care of, that they have that coming from an adult. And what starts to happen in that scenario is then the child starts to internalize that. Like, oh, I can soothe myself. I can imagine that my mom is here. We kind of, those skills naturally start to translate. And then as we grow up, we can tap into those skills. Mm -hmm. We can use them in very uh, overt or subconscious ways where when we're in certain situations, we go, oh, you know what? I, I can lean into myself and I know how to calm myself down. I know how to help myself feel regulated. I know how to get to safety or to reach out for somebody. We have that within us, right? We don't need somebody outside of us necessarily telling us what to do. But when we look at survivors of complex trauma in particular, and I do put religious trauma under that complex trauma umbrella, we're looking at a lot of individuals who never had that experience of being safely attached to an adult. In a lot of cases, our parents were both a source of love and extreme fear. Yes. Right? And so we're I often very to confused. That. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Despite the intentions, right? right. Like I was right. getting messages yeah. that were overwhelming and scary yep. to my system. Yep. And I was getting lots of love, but those things were happening simultaneously. Simultaneously. Yes, absolutely. It's similar to what we might call a trauma bond. Yes. Like when it is that love and fear coming from the same person. Yes. So when we're working with complex trauma, one of the first things I work with every single client is developing our internal safety because we're in most cases doing that for the very, very first time. I use a lot of guided imagery in this where I might have them go to like what they might consider a calming space, like just an image of that. We bring all of our senses into that. And we use that as what I call like an anchor into safety, right? So it's It's a great example. Yeah. They didn't, they weren't actually there. They weren't at the beach or the mountain or with this person. They were imagining it was coming from within themselves, but their physiology changed. Your body responds as if. Yes. Yes. As if. Yes. And so that's where I like to start with people creating a sense of internal safety. And then we bring that out into the world. Okay. Where can we do that? That's right. Where can we practice in non, you know, non-crisis situations? Mm -hmm. Can I start making that a part of my habit, my routine, that these are the skills that I have within myself. And then as I start to navigate the world, I am invited to respond in different ways. And that also then helps with the trauma resolution process, because as we're renegotiating some of these overwhelming events, we now have tools within us to help us complete that cycle. Um, We're not necessarily dependent on the outside world. Now, it can be wonderful if the outside world 
is safe and secure and that we have great connections, but we want, we don't want to have that in lieu of internal safety. That's right. We'd like both. I mean, that's what we're going for, but internal safety would be key. Laura, beautiful. That's, that feels like the perfect place to end it Mm. is that that is the work, right? We're learning to return to internal safety more, 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 building it on both levels, external, internal. Mm. That is the process of healing. Laura's book, When Religion Hurts You, Healing from Religious Trauma and the Impact of High Control Religion is available. It is incredible. I hope everyone goes and buys it immediately and shares it. It's beautiful, Laura. It's so great. I would love it for our last little goodbye if you would just share with our listeners um, how they can follow along with you, where they can find you and, and follow along and engage with your work. So you can find me across all platforms at Dr. Laura E. Anderson. So that my website is DrLauraEAnderson.com. Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram are Dr. Laura E. Anderson. The company that I run is a fully online trauma coaching company, which is the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery. And we are TraumaResolutionAndRecovery.com and Trauma Resolution and Recovery on Instagram. Yeah, that's probably the best places. That means you can work yeah. with folks all over the, yes. the world, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, not just yeah. in Tennessee. Yeah. Yeah, we have um, clients from all over the world. Fabulous. We have practitioners from all over the United States, North America. Yeah. And every single one of them has their own experience personally in religious trauma and has also done advanced trauma training yeah. in body-based trauma resolution modalities to work with clients. So it's just an incredible Beautiful. group of people to be working alongside. Absolutely, Laura. Oh, that's amazing. I'm just so happy to watch all that you're doing. It's just so wonderful. Thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, Laura, thank you for being here. Thank you for being with us, sharing yourself with us. This was such a rich conversation, and I know the listeners are going to love it. It was a really, really healing conversation for me, too. So thank you so much. I'm so glad. Thank you, Jordan. It was lovely to be here. I appreciate you. Thank you. That's a wrap for this episode. Thank you again to my guest, Dr. Laura Anderson. Thank you for sharing yourself with us and for letting your healing light the way for so many others. If you haven't already, please take a moment now to subscribe, rate, and review us on your podcast app of choice. It really makes a difference and helps other people find the show. We'll see you back here next month with another amazing guest. And in the meantime, we hope you'll join us in the next Saturday Salon, a weekly hour of sacred space to spend on your creative projects, hosted by Jordan via Zoom. Sign up via the events page on our website, psychemagicpodcast.com. If you believe in this work and want to support the continuation of our show, please join us on Patreon. There, we are building a community where you'll find bonus dream work exercises, guided meditations, fun minisodes, and so much more. That's patreon.com backslash psyche magic. All links are included in show notes. We hope you'll also follow along with our shenanigans on Instagram and TikTok at Psyche Magic Podcast. Psyche Magic was produced and recorded by me, Jordan Hale. Editing for this episode is by Masuzu Inaga. Our theme music is by Young Summer. Artwork is by Annika Murphy. Special thanks go to Daniel Higby, Grace Fuse, and Michael McMillan. Thank you so much for listening. I'll leave you with a question. 
If you must sleep through a third of your life, are you willing to sleep through your dreams too? Get your dream journals out, y'all. Until next time.